0: Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to sheerclarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin McHugh again with another episode of Sheer Clarity. It's the business leader podcast where we talk about leadership by attraction. I've said it enough in many intros, so I'm not going to repeat it again and again, but I am with a leader and have the absolute gift of having this interview with uh, Teresa Lindsay. She is the CEO of Channel Products. I'm going to let her tell you about the company, and then we're going to talk about her path and her life. She has an amazing story. I've met her maybe a year or so ago during one of my YPO training events. It's kind of fun to be here in my hometown in Cleveland, Ohio. And this is one of the great joys of this podcast because we're doing it in person. And we might touch on what the post-pandemic life looks like for her and her company, but for. Now, I just want to be grateful that she's here. I want to introduce her by letting her introduce herself. So, tell us who you are, what you're doing, what's your current like activity level day to day. (laughs) And then I'm going to dive into those deep soul searching questions, (laughs) which I'm so noted for. And we'll just keep in mind the idea for the podcast is people want to hear other people's stories. Yeah. You have a great story about leadership. And I want any person who listens to be inspired.
1: Perfect. So there
0: you go. So just kind of get us started with like who you are right now and <laughs> what's got your time and your attention. And then we'll, we'll swing into your story.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. I am so grateful to be participating in this. I love the objective of it. I love what you're doing. I think it's fantastic. Leaders come together and it's a wonderful thing to inspire and motivate. I'm Teresa Lindsay, as you said, I'm the CEO of Channel Products. We are a global manufacturing company. We have a few sites around the world. We manufacture what I like to say, very sexy product. We do gas ignition components. And oh, that, yeah, that,
0: <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> that, nothing, nothing. <laughs>
1: It's like, definitely what you like, thought of, right? Oh, so, yeah.
0: yeah. Gas and sexy. That's, like, they go together.
1: Um, yeah. People often think Chanel. They see me, they see my business oh, card, they true. see a blonde in heels, and they yeah. automatically, oh, you're the president of Chanel? That's yeah. unbelievable. Do you have any samples? <laughs> exactly. I don't have purses, but I have igniters. So yeah. yeah. So that's what we do. It's basically a company that makes components and products that control and keep safe the flow of gas, primarily serving the outdoor living segment. If you can imagine, you know, spending time outdoors with your family and friends and barbecuing and sitting around a fire pit, enjoying things like that, we participate in products like that.
0: Got it. How old's the company?
1: Oh, my goodness. I hate to say this, but it's true. The company is as old as I am. It is 48 years old. We share the same birthday year. Oh, get out of here. (laughs) That's
0: amazing. When did you join? How did you get connected with the company and Give me a little bit about your path to this corner office.
1: Yeah, yeah. So about 10 years ago, I was working for Weinberg Capital Group. They're a private equity firm, family office here in Cleveland, Ohio. I was working at one of their other companies. Joined them at the PE firm when that company was divested, and uh, they bought channel products. And within a few months of owning the company it was recognized that perhaps some changes needed to be made. And so here I am, I was already involved with the business. And so here I am, we can talk a little bit more about that later on.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks for the intro as to what you're doing. How about hobbies and things that you do to keep active outside of work? What kinds of things you're hobbies. doing right what now? Hobbies, what are those? Well, maybe that's the... Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, You're right. Maybe no CEO has hobbies. How about your interests and things that occupy your time and attention when you're not being the CEO?
1: Yeah. So obviously, families first and foremost. In addition to that, I have my own faith life that consumes a lot of my, I'd say, focus and time and energy, family. And then I like to work out. My husband and I enjoy that quite a bit. Uh, we work out. And I like quiet time. And I take that time very early in the morning, generally before anybody else in my home is awake, just to spend time with my vision board, spend time meditating, spend time searching the things that I spoke about in my faith life. And so that's important to me. A
0: vision board. yeah, uh, that has my attention. Give me a little idea of what Your vision board exercise is or how that works. What is that? So
1: I obviously can't show you my vision board here on a podcast, but you can envision it with me. And basically it's a board and it has all of the things in my life as if, as if it were.
0: And so for
1: instance, I have specific destinations that I would love to see. I have up there um, legacy uh, because it's really important to myself and my husband to leave a legacy, not only with our family, but in the world around us to make an impact and a difference. I have that. I have future goals for myself, for my career. And so it's an entire vision board, very colorfully and cleverly orchestrated. And so in the mornings, what I will do is I actually will sit after I have my other time, I will sit, I'll do some affirmations and I will go around the vision board and name off each thing. And I'm so grateful for this, as if it's already happened. I'm so grateful that I've had the opportunity to travel the world and see these very specific places. Mm. I'm so grateful that we have been able to achieve a life that allows us to leave a powerful legacy, both in our contribution to the world and also a legacy of faith in our family. And so I always say it out loud as if it's already happened. I'm so grateful. What a
0: great what a great way to see it. So you just you have this idea and then you begin to speak in your head as though it already happened. I'm so glad I took that trip to Israel and or whatever. Why and do you believe it actually works to get you moving in the direction of that? I mean, can you see it?
1: I do. I am a believer in that. I am a believer that who we are inside, how we think, how we program ourselves. I believe that we have software. In our brains, and we can reprogram that software. I do believe that your thought life can oftentimes dictate your outcome later on. That's right. And drive behaviors along the way. And if you're a defeatist, inevitably you're going to be defeated. Yes. If you have positivity, regardless of what's happening along the way, you are going to manifest a lot of amazing things in your life. People are drawn to that. And your behaviors tend to follow your thought process. Amen. You know, what you think, what you believe in your heart will usually manifest itself in your life. And so that's important to me. It's important that I stay focused. And if I start to drift, I just try to bring myself back. Yeah, Like if I'm yeah. drifting, if if I'm slipping in my thoughts, I try to bring myself back. And the way I do that is I'll say, well, wait a second. Do you really want to manifest that in your life? Mm-hmm. If I have a negative thought or I'm a fear even, yeah." I will say, do you really want to see that come true? And the answer is, of course, no. No. Well, then stop thinking about it. Because if you think about it, it's probably going to happen. Yeah,
0: I'm glad you're mentioning it because in a lot of the coaching work that I do individually, I spend a lot of time using a model and it's called Voice Dialogue. And it's a Jungian model created by two psychologists, Hal and Sidra Stone, and Jung had this theory that we don't have just one voice in our head or one energy. We have many of them, many different selves. And each of them is separate and has its own voice. And then some of them are just designed for criticism. That's what they do. Others are judgmental and that's what they do. And others become primary and their job is to protect. And then right next door to them is another voice that says, I got to control the situation. But these voices are what you're saying are your thoughts. We actually reflect when we do self-reflection. We do it in sentences talking to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I spend a lot of time helping people sort of like, you better hear the story you're telling yourself and ask a question, is this even true? And if I keep acting like it's true, well, what's that look like for you? And then what happens if you decided, well, maybe it's not true. In fact, I don't want it to be true. And it sounds very similar to what you just so described powerful. is what you're doing with your, your vision board. I'm saying, no, I'm I'm evaluating what thoughts are going to occupy my mind and drive me. And if they're negative, I'm going to work on getting rid of those and I'm going to turn to the positivity.
1: So it's powerful. It's a very big skill. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. A lot of that comes from our childhoods, actually. Yes. You know, it really does. We're pre-programmed, pre-wired. Oh that yes. software programmed as children. And I will even as an adult, uh, there are times when I'll, I will actually say out loud, thank you, little Teresa, but that's not necessary. That's not need- I'm in <laughs> charge. I'm handling this. You're right. safe. You're okay. Right. You don't have to contribute here yes. because it's true. That stuff does come up and we don't, most, the average person doesn't recognize that. Yep. And yep. if you don't recognize it, you can't call it out.
0: That's right. In that model, the term they use is disowned selves. Mm -hmm. There are parts of us that we learned as children not to do. Don't be like this. Don't be like that. All you needed was a look from my father. And just that was the message of disapproval. Not only you better stop doing that, but you have about three seconds or there will be a consequence. And it might have to do with (laughs) a spanking or something similar. Right. So actually, you're right. And then those programs just start getting layered and the coding gets in there. And when, to me, adulthood is like, no, you're going to become a coder, and you're going to learn how your code has been written, and you're going to learn to rewrite code, and you're going to update your software, and you're going to have 2.0 and 2.3 and 3.0. And all of that requires basically time to reflect, and that's what's missing. Everybody's too darn busy. I love this, but I want to talk about you. Here's what I want you to do is you're highly successful. You're prominent. You are also in the diversity and inclusion topic, a female CEO. So there's a lot of going on there and you had a path here and it started since you were talking about childhood. Would you just take a little time and talk about your childhood and growing up? and the challenges as well as the good things. But how how did you get here? As you look back, what was some of the programming? What programming did you have to rewrite? Did you have struggles that were teaching you? Because ultimately, I come to the conclusion that most of what we're learning is coming from difficulty and adversity. And if you don't have any adversity, just wait. It's coming. Eventually you will. So just, you know, give me a sense of family and where you grew up and what the family unit was like and size and siblings and all that good stuff and just riff on. So I just I want to know more.
1: Maybe that's a bigger discussion than this podcast allows, but just no, I'll try to your, summarize be, me, it yeah, for give you. Give me your
0: best, you know, version of with We'll be here for a little bit, so <laughs> relax and tell.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in a very rural area and uh, here in Ohio and was raised by my grandparents and I had an interesting, very loving upbringing with them. And yet one that was very much poverty stricken. They did not have much. My grandfather fell ill. So just had a unique upbringing like that. I was the kid that we were dirty kids. And so I was the one that was picked on, you know, on the bus, uh, hair pulling, name calling, you know, we just didn't. I've shared before that there was a girl in class. I remember seeing her day after day and her nails, her fingernails were so clean. I mean, just Clean. And it seems like the simplest of things. Most of us have clean fingernails unless we're in an industry type right, of, of right. work setting. And I coveted that. I mean, not like I was desperate for that. I couldn't imagine how do you get fingernails like that? Just because it was the norm for me to not have that. And I, I was envious in so many ways. And a lot of challenging things grew up, you know, taking baths in a metal wash tub, kind of old school, things that you don't really see. That's with, rural. Yeah, that, with stuff my deal. age. I, I can't say my neighbors did that, but we did. Yeah. And uh, the back of our home, I had learned when I got a little bit older, was actually a chicken coop that they had moved up from one of the neighbors down the road. We didn't have a kitchen on the back of the house. This predates them taking custody of us, but they moved the chicken coupon attached it to the back of the house. And that then became the kitchen. We had no running water. We had a well outside, no bathroom, no facilities inside, an outhouse outside. And so it was just a very interesting and somewhat challenging childhood. I would say the number one takeaway, if I were to associate an emotion or a feeling, it was two things, love, because I definitely felt loved, but the other was fear. I remember just being in constant chronic fear, fear that the state was going to come and take us away because they had taken my siblings. I'm the oldest of nine. If you put us all together, we're somewhat step-siblings, or I would say half More than step, but it was just myself and my sister that grew up with my grandparents. We were the first two. They took custody of us. And I just remember always being afraid afraid of being bullied, afraid of everything you can imagine. And, you know, that really etches a lot into you. It carves a lot into you as a young person. And as we continued to grow, my grandfather fell ill and very ill, had a stroke and was somewhat like a newborn baby, sort of starting over at a more seasoned age. And, and so watching that happen, I was grandpa's girl. And so that was difficult and painful time, confusing time.
0: How old were you when that happened, when you're I'm assuming something ha- went down with your, your parents that required the grandparents to take over. So, how old were you when all that?
1: About four. Yeah, between three so and pretty four. Pretty young. Yeah, yeah sure. It's pretty young. And then my grandfather had that stroke when I was about nine, and so, like I said, I was always Grandpa's girl, and so that was a little bit of a challenge for me, and and like I said, confusing seeing him in a new. Altered state,
0: yeah, if yeah. you will. Not- so you weren't able to receive all of the grandpa's girl yeah. love and affection. From and- that
1: point forward, no. Yeah,
0: it was taken away. So not only are birth parents taken away, then this cuddly grandpa is also
1: Correct. Kind of taken away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, over time we did move, we finally had a bathroom. I remember, it's interesting, I went through a process once where uh, just looking at my life And really categorizing all of the positive events on kind of the top of the timeline, the negative events or painful events on the bottom of the timeline. And the very first really positive thing that I could remember and associate with kind of the first thing that comes to mind thing was when I was about 9, 10 years old after my grandfather had the stroke and we moved and we moved into a home with a bathtub. No shower, but a bathtub and a toilet.
0: Like we're moving up.
1: Yeah. And that just (laughs) felt like the most incredible experience ever. I remember the elation that I felt. And I remember it was a yellow bathtub and yellow toilet, but I didn't even care. It was the most incredible experience. So, in any case, you know, a lot of challenges along the way growing up. You know, you asked, and then from there, like where do you go and how do you transition? And I just remember always, as long as I can remember, wanting more not being angry about where I was, but wanting more, wanting more for my life and convinced, by the way, that I could be more. And I always said that I never wanted to be a victim of circumstance. Now, today as an adult, in hindsight, I am always one of those people now that looks back and says, when I hear somebody say, I'm not going to be a victim of circumstance, I'm not going to be a victim of my environment and things like that, I sort of view that as a little bit of a, of a cop-out because I think it's an easy thing to say to not have to actually dig in and face and deal with those things from your past. So there's no real healing or restoration. It's just kind of a muscle-up thing. And so I would say back then I thought that, but since then I've dealt with all of those things. And so I would no longer say I refuse to be a victim of circumstance. I would say I had a lot going on that I had to process and deal with. And to heal and and transition from that mindset,
0: you actually stimulated something. I, I want to tell you about that popped for me. We're telling your story, uh, or you're telling your story, and I have to tell you when this is occurring. Yesterday, I released the first of a three part series. I decided to do. I waded into the diversity and inclusion conversation. And I have a belief that I lay out in the podcast, I won't go into overdo it, that if we could be still and sit with each other to do what you and I are doing right now and tell each other the story of who we really are and how we grew up and what we faced, that you could do that with any other human, no matter what the differential was. No matter how the differential has been categorized or identified, whether it's ethnic, racial, socioeconomic, political, and if two humans just sat down and shared the story, then there's a chance, like what's happening for me with you now, which is my heart is engaged. Yeah. And as you're speaking, I just had this pop into my mind that – your ability to tell your story is based on your decision to go look at it like in detail. And I wonder how many people are afraid to do that. What is it that makes people? I mean, I have within my own family, I've got a bunch of kids and a bunch of grandkids, and I can already see differences between some of them. I'm very intrigued and interested and courageous to go back and look at the past. And I see others of them that may no no interest in that. And I just, I don't know, I kind of wanted to see if you can identify, how did you come up with the courage to do that? Because I think it's absolutely critical.
1: I think it's conditioning. I think that in our world and in our society, especially in the US, we have been conditioned to be stronger, be braver, be bold, be courageous, be this stuff, and don't fuss, don't whine, suck it up, move on. And there's... Uh, an element of truth to all of those things, right? Where you just have to kind of buck up and, and make it happen. And that's the case for anybody who's been through anything, any type of trauma, difficulty, challenge. You do have to overcome. You should overcome. But I think we're so conditioned to not go back there that it's seen as a sign of weakness If you, or a sign of extreme vulnerability that people really don't want to explore when you go back there and to admit that you had challenges or have made mistakes, I think is viewed so poorly, it's frowned upon. And so people spend their entire lifetimes covering up their past and they never want to truly peel the onion, dig deep. Get to the root of it because there's a root. There's a root to our behaviors and get to the root of it and pull it up. Let's deal with this. Let's face it. Let's heal. Let's restore. And as a result, people get pent up. They wear a lot of masks. And then after all of the masks, then they start to take on medicators because the masks are too hard to wear and too difficult to carry. And so then they start to medicate and to deal with all of that. Numbing. And so there's, Numbing. Yep. Very, yep. there's this cycle That we come into and we reach a point in life and sometimes even our behaviors, anger, resentment, a lot of the lashing out that you see in the world today, it's because people are hurting and they don't feel heard. And when we have basic needs of being seen, heard, you know, loved, and they're not being met and not being met, first of all, because there aren't the people in our lives that will do exactly what you said sit down and listen. Listen to my challenges. Listen to my perspective. Listen to my hurt, to my walk, my journey. Because we don't take time to do that, we're a society that's busy, self-centered, egocentric, and we don't take time. And so you have a bunch of people walking around that are heavy burdened. They're carrying a lot of baggage, pulling baggage. They are angry and resentful and they're doing one of two things. They're putting their head down and they're just plowing through, grinding through, searching for their next fulfilling thing in life, which is empty and, and hollow. Or they're lashing out. They've got a cause. I'm angry. I, I need to be heard. And, you, you know, and they're lashing out. And so we have a society that is cannibalizing itself because nobody will do exactly what you have said. Sit and listen. And
0: listen and, and, or journal or yeah. write down. I have a great friend who used this metaphor. He said, all of that pain from the past, whether it's in the category of resentments, confusion, or shame, you know, it's all packaged. It's all bundled up. And imagine it in a bag on a carousel from the airport. You're in the baggage claim. Here comes your luggage. And you've got six bags one of which is the black bag with your crap storm that's been unopened. And he said, "You can stand there, collect all your other bags, and that bag just keeps on going and disappears behind the wall. And if you hang around long enough, it'll come, it'll come right back, back that's out."
1: That's right. I just did a talk on shame, and and it covered so much of that. Just that how it is such a gripping, and I spoke about it as kind of the carbon monoxide in our lives. Most people don't know they have shame. Most people don't know that it that it's existing but it's there and it's deadly and it is poisoning our lives in so many ways. And we often don't know until it's too late. It comes out, it manifests itself in behaviors that are unbecoming and and it's problematic.
0: Yeah. I'm intrigued. Do you know when and how and in what way you made this decision to look at that stuff and not be bound by it? Are you conscious of how that happened, when that happened? Was it over time? Was there a wake-up moment? I mean, for anyone who's in a carbon monoxide environment and they don't even know right okay what's the equivalent of a carbon monoxide alarm going off how does one do that and i was just are, do you have any memory of of how that or when that happened
1: you know actually i think it happened for me later in life okay and not okay. Tell not me about young that. that kind of drove me to change my life but i think my life started to change beforehand it was really a matter of being self-aware, you know, not everyone is self-aware and
0: how did you come um, by it though? That's the piece that self-awareness. Yes, 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 yes. Like, because if you can name it, if you, if you can figure it out, I think it would be helpful. I think one one of the
1: greatest things for me was my faith when I encountered my faith. And that I think was a pivotal transformation for me. Well, I know it was because it allowed me to recognize who i was where i was and where i was not and it showed me that this i could align having more or a greater life or or a i would say You know, I don't know, just that life that you dream about. And for me back then, years ago, the dream was just to have a bathroom. Have a bathroom. And then the dream was to, you know, I want to, you know, at some time be in a leadership position. I don't even know what that looked like, right? I love speaking and teaching. I wanted to do that. I didn't even know what that looked like. But my faith allowed me to have all of those dreams and desires align with the sense that, wow, on my own, I don't think I can get there and my need for something greater than me. To help drive all of that. And that led me on a journey of reading, discovering, praying, seeking. It led me on a journey of wanting to be mentored. It led me on a journey of taking my dreams and putting them on paper of, okay, what does this look like? Let me write it down. Let me think about it. But it wasn't until much later in life, I would say even more recent in my life, that I actually, and it was a very specific event, I'd always known that I had baggage and I was always the very self-aware and dealing with it and overcoming and the restoring of all of that. But I was at a retreat and it was a very interesting leadership retreat. I would say self-discovery retreat, if you will, and a betterment retreat. And while I was there, everything that I just spoke about, that the masks and the medicators and the behaviors and all of that, there was a very specific moment. It was a five-day retreat, but there was one specific moment during that retreat where my guide, which is just a a very lovely way to say therapist, actually there was a demonstration and illustration of all of those things that I mentioned laying on the floor. And I said, I was weeping and I said, how do I get back to the original me? How do I get back to, to that young girl where that naivety, that joy, that trust, that how do I get back there? How do I solve for all of these things? Because in my mind, I'm a doer, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a fixer. right? So the idea for most of us is we're going to work on this problem and this problem and this problem and this character trait and this character trait and this issue and this mask and this medicator. And there's not enough lifetimes for us to actually get through that. And he did this very unique thing with me. He got down on the ground and he put his hands together and he slid them up through the middle of all of these cards that were on the floor representing each one of these things, all the way back to this stuffed animal, if you will, representing childhood. And he just split them apart and created a path straight through. And in that very moment, my mind was blown. I was confused. I was challenged. I was hopeful. <laughs> like, wow, right. is that even possible? And he very kindly said, I know in your mind, you want to solve for all of these things and then you'll get back there. Right.
0: Right. Right. right it's right.
1: never going to happen. Right. You have to recognize that these things have happened, that they are, that they will not always be. But you have to recognize that today, today, you can be that again. Go right there. Go right there. Right. Bypass all of this kind of noise that yep. you feel like you have to silence. Bypass it. Go right there to that place and live as if. Speak out loud as if that is your world and your reality.
0: And in that case, the icon of the teddy bear was representing you.
1: Yeah, it was actually a purple platypus. A and purple yes. Platypus.
0: Yeah, I just assume. it was. A, you said stuff to Adam like, "Oh, it's got to be a tentative. Okay. It platypus. makes sense it was a purple uh, platypus. Significant <laughs> distinction and fairly important yeah, here because yeah, yeah. we're talking so, about your essence. Exactly, exactly. But yes,
1: it was representative of that oh. childhood, that naivety, that how can you start over? How can you blank slate if you will in a yeah. life full of stuff? So in any case, I and that was this. really helpful.
0: I got to be honest with you. It's so timely in the progression of the podcast series on diversity and inclusion. The first one is called the power of knowing your heart story. Mm-hmm. And you just described the method, the process, the guidance to go right to the core of your heart And its innocence and its originality, even though it was surrounded by a myriad of issues. And this guy did something powerful. The second episode is going to be the power of learning another person's heart story, which is what you and I are doing. I'm learning yours and you know something of mine because we've had some conversations so we've shared both ways and then the third part of the series is i'm going to talk about what is the power of learning the biggest story and that's the one that you also beautifully sort of pointed towards faith something beyond you and The way the sequence is, I think those three will come out, and I think you'll be next. So you are going to—this is God's timing, really. It's so—I'm like sitting here being blown away by we ended up in this conversation, because it's going to punctuate those three prior. And all I was doing was saying, I have a theory about how to deal with all this division and chaos, and and it's one person— working on themselves first if you're chaotic, you got nothing to offer anybody else on, right. on the planet earth <laughs> so and you just described with um, beautiful detail and color how you took the chaos which was chaos yeah, for you
1: yeah. well, and I think of recognizing that most executives, most CEOs, most presidents, most executives aren't allowed to Recognize that. We're not allowed to be, we're encouraged to be very vulnerable. I'm a huge proponent of vulnerability. It creates trust. Trust doesn't exist without it. However, and I'm a woman, so I can get away with it a little bit more. But the reality is, most executives aren't permitted to be vulnerable in that way. They can be vulnerable because they tell a story and it kind of opens them up to their associates or to a room that they're speaking to, but they can never say, Hey, I've got some ugly. I've got some ugly. They're not afforded that in almost any area of their lives because they can't almost let it leak anywhere. That's why so many executives are having marital issues. They're having issues in their homes. They're having uh, issues in their personal life. They have medicators and masks. And it's because there's no outlet. It's what I talked about before. We've become a society that doesn't allow. We see it as weakness as opposed to it being viewed as beautiful vulnerability, because we're all we're all flawed, we're all broken people on the inside to some extent. <sighs> we really are.
0: We shame you for having shame. Yes. So don't speak it.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. You have
0: shame. Well, that's shameful. If you decide you're going to share your shame, it. It's, that's right. It's, it's a, a it's
1: terrible. It's a terrible yeah. thing that we've done to yeah. one another.
0: And and then then you add that. And after you've decided to hide the shame, now not only do you have the shame, you have absolute terror that you'll be discovered.
1: Yes, absolutely. Afraid to
0: death of sharing it because then people, what will they think of you and how will I be seen? And we are just locked into craziness. Yep. And now this last year and a half has just it's
1: magnified. It's becoming very it's polarized, tr- right? It's a very polarizing it's society very, that we live very, in. Very difficult. Yeah. Most executives, whether they would admit it or not, are plagued by a little bit of imposter syndrome.
0: Yeah, I have podcast on it from last year. I talked about it because I see it all the time. Yeah. I mean. I have to confess, I've probably had my own versions of that over, sure, over the years. Have. I mean, I'm assuming you can yeah. be acquainted.
1: <laughs> Very with much so. With I can that. identify it because I've lived it. That's yeah, like, I, I'm just at a point in my yeah. life where I'm really to say it out loud. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no? Yeah. Like, okay, drop the pretense. Yeah, but right. it But it took a while to do that. So let me ask you, when you're doing your job here at the company to lead people, You mentioned how powerful trust is. I'm assuming from our conversation that you lead with vulnerability. So what right now are you challenged by most in this leadership role you have? Like, What still keeps you up from time to time?
1: You know, sometimes, well, there are a lot of things, I think, for any leader, you lose sleep over a lot of salient details about business and things that are going on. But when it comes to leadership, I think for me, it's really two things. It's one, helping. I feel like I'm always running out of time, right? Time is never our friend, generally. And so it's how do we, I say we, make the biggest impact in the shortest amount of time? In changing people's lives, in showing people love, in showing people kindness, and yet not being okay with people staying in a flawed place, right? How do we help individuals see what I've had the privilege of seeing? Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, you don't have to stay where you are. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to be vulnerable. You don't have to stay there though. And so that's the very personal side of leadership for me with my folks. And then marrying that to business right? Marrying that to the performance that's required of them, marrying that to the performance that we want here within the company. And so I think when leaders look at their business as all business, they miss something tremendously. And if they're looking at it as all business, but oh, by the way, we have a great culture and there's a poster on their wall. And I still think they're missing it tremendously. I think if you're looking at your organization as a bunch of human beings, who have lives and struggles and happiness and, and moments to be celebrated and moments to share in a place of brokenness. If you can look at your organization that way and try then to take all of that and make a business out of it, I think that that's the right approach to leadership. It's my opinion. I, it could be a flawed I opinion. No,
0: I mean, yeah, I'm with you. I teach it.
1: I think that's my greatest challenge is to continue to discover that and continue as we're adding new people to make sure that everyone understands their value and that they're loved. I say that here. Look, I love you guys. Yeah. I love you. I love your families. It's not something that CEOs generally say to their people. But
0: I, I get it. Yeah, but I, I say it. it.
1: I love you. I love your families. I care. I really care. I'm not allowed in any HR meetings where we're releasing someone. And the reason is because 100% of the time, as strong as I am as a CEO, I cry 100% of the time. So my HR director won't let me in. She's like, you're not allowed in (laughs) (laughs) anymore."
0: And the reason is
1: because I can't help. It doesn't matter. Your heart is. It it doesn't matter if it's, and it's usually always for performance reasons. I'm thinking of, they're going to go home and they're going to have to be embarrassed for a moment because they're going to have to share this experience oh, with somebody. Painful. They're going to have to, on their drive home from here, wrestle with how do, what do I do about my bills? What do I do about food for my family? They're going to have to process the anger, the frustration, the self-realization yep. that they dropped the ball. Yep. And that makes me cry, quite frankly. I can't you know, help I it. it. I, yeah. I,
0: I, I get it. What you said earlier, I want to sort of to kind of revisit Because I think it's a very interesting point of integrating both love and caring and performance. Mm -hmm. Because by itself, performance is transactional and there's no love. Love, you'll end up not having anybody to love if you don't perform because your business will fail. So, you somehow have to pull the two of those together. I think that's poignant. To be able to drive from a business mind what metrics are indicating performance, setting goals, setting quality goals, all the things, you know, that we can metricize. And it's gotten pretty crazy sure. because of technology now. Everything its just insane. But I've watched companies that tilt into that space and there's no... Harmony, no love, no sense of team. You know, it just doesn't exist. And it's well, it be become clear. robots.
1: Yeah, let's be clear. Love, and I think this is why most executives don't use the word, why right. they don't incorporate it into their businesses, is because love is soft. And it, it comes across as, or I guess stereotypically, love is very soft and mushy yeah. and touchy And feely gentle and, and, and yeah. oh, kumbaya kind of stuff. There's tough love. I love people, but I will sit them down and say, because I love you, you are not getting this right. You better get your stuff together. There's a way to deliver messaging. There's a way to communicate that love in such a way that you can deal with the tough stuff. You can, yep. you can force performance. And you can lovingly release people when they just don't get it. You know, you can incorporate love on every level level. of your organization and every level of your decision-making and have a very strong, thriving, growing business. If people feel loved, they will perform for you. They will. Totally get it. They absolutely will. Totally get it.
0: Now, by the way, if if you really want to have fun with this message... Just take it down to Wall Street and go ahead and some hedge fund.
1: <laughs> Say I love you. you know, How much love is actually,
0: here? Actually, <laughs> I probably have some sort of special system to actually kill you, like zap you before you even get on the elevator. <laughs> nah, not having that in here. That's right. Because we're, yeah. we're here to kill yeah. and eat what we kill. Yeah, exactly. Life. I mean, I, I've i spent time on both coasts yep. in my work with the YPO world and the ethos and the culture. I mean, it's crazy, really. But what's also true is I have encountered a couple of rock-solid men and women of faith that exist in that system. And they bring it, but in the way you're talking about right now. So, do you get to sense or see the impact that you have on the culture? I have this belief that the culture starts at the top. Whatever you're generating and the energy flow that's coming out of this place right here, this office we're in, it gets felt and then brought down. And eventually you hope it takes root and eventually there are people – I heard the term – culture carriers, and they should be part of the onboarding process. If you can identify the culture carriers, the ones who really get it, they should be the teachers and mentors to the new folks. Are you able to sense that it's working and that it's received and operating if we walked out of here and went back into the plant and
1: Of course. You know, when I see it the most, I'm always amazed, you know, because it's like any family. We're very familial here, even though we're a global company. We always, when we talk to our employees around the world, we always say, you know, the channel family. And we cultivate that. But where I notice it the most, you know, families have their ugly internally. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. I can punch my sister, but if you punch her, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, right. that kind of thing. So we're like that a bit. But where I notice it is when they're outside of here and they're representing us, whether it's at a mm. culture event or you know we're getting some type of an award or recognition, and I hear them speak, and that, th- and I'm always blown away by it because I'm like, going. wow, you get it, I like. I don't even know that I knew you got it, but you got it. Like you're amazing. (laughs) And that's really powerful for me because it's when you hear your people representing you outside the walls, I hear people complaining all the time about other companies, about the places that they work. And, but when you hear your people saying, oh my goodness, channel products is incredible. And here's why, Mm -hmm. let me tell you all the reasons why I love where I'm at. And why I wouldn't leave. Hmm. That's powerful to me. That's when you know you're you're getting it. It's right. when you hear your kids say something outside of you, apart from you. Somebody comes up and says, hey, I met Johnny the other day. And oh my goodness, what an amazing kid. Oh, he said, you know, this, this, and this. And you're blown away, right? As a parent, right, you're right, just right. like, wow. I'm
0: so proud. It's yeah, like, yeah. And it's really it.
1: like that. Yeah. So, I like yeah.
0: it. That's a great description of it. Well... I'm kind of blown away, man. This went way, way, way too fast. I have to start bringing it to a close. And so what I feel like I'm doing is I'm having this conversation with a woman who grew up with chicken coop for a kitchen. And her first big happy time was a real bathtub. A woman who overcame poverty and the challenges of a childhood that were far from easy. And somewhere along the way you discovered yourself and made decisions about how to think and how to think in the best of positive ways. And those, that skill, that ability actually had some of its beginning in a faith moment. And so I believe psychology and spirituality are the combo. They should be integrated. They should be part of everyone's life. So you've made that clear. And the love that you have and the way you bring it, absolutely, positively, I got it. I can feel it. It's fantastic. I love what you've done here. I love you for who you are in the world. It's what you bring to the world and would always be there to help you in any way I could. I can tell you the last question is my favorite. I ask it for everybody. So now that you are 48, I think you said, if you look back to this little... 21, 22, 23 year old Teresa, knowing all that you know now, what would you have said to her? What would be your advice to her?
1: It's such a great question. And I have spent different times in my life reflecting upon those things. I would say that I would tell her that everything that you think you can be, everything that you think you can accomplish, you can. And so start sooner. I would tell her to be confident, be bold, and dig in sooner. I would say that. And I would say to put the effort in to discover yourself, right? Put the effort in. Because a lot of people get to mid-late life cycle and that's when they're really starting to come to terms with everything. I would encourage her to do that a bit sooner. And the benefits of that will be exponential. In her life, I would tell her to don't be afraid to love, don't be afraid to be vulnerable, don't be afraid to stand strong for what you believe. And it might all sound cliche, but I can tell you that those are exactly the things that I have benefited from as an adult. So I would encourage her to be that sooner in life and to know that she can do it. Education wasn't a priority when I was growing up, my grandparents had dropped out of high school, I dropped out of high school. I went back and got my bachelor's and my master's after I got my GED, which would have been frowned upon. But, you know, you can do all of that and you can do it with much success and much gusto. And don't let anybody tell you that you can't. And don't let anybody shame you about your past and about your childhood and your experiences. Don't let anybody make you feel bad about your accomplishments or make you feel bad that you want more make you feel bad, that you, you view yourself as being worthy of more. We're never allowed to see ourselves as being worthy of love, of being worthy of success. It's frowned upon. It's seen as egocentric and self-centeredness. But the truth is we're worthy of that. I think we're failed and flawed. We're also worthy of a lot of other bad things, right, because of the things that we've done. And, but we are highly valued as human beings. And we need to recognize that first about ourselves because it changes our behavior. I would tell her that. Know your value now. Now, at 20, 15, 16. Know your value now because it will greatly determine how other people see you and it will greatly determine the direction of your life. Because if I know my value and I see myself as being highly valued, I am always going to see others as being highly valued. And that, to me, would be life-changing if I would have realized that a lot sooner in life.
0: Well, I can tell you something that you've done that you may not know about. Yesterday, I met a 23-year-old young man. He's the son of an executive I coach. And he just asked me if I'd have a phone call. And we spent an hour and a half together. And I can't wait for him to hear this podcast because you summed up beautifully what any 23-year-old would benefit from hearing. Yeah. So Teresa, Good. Lindsay, thank you so much thank for you. a crazy, great interview. Yeah. I can't wait for you to hear it.
1: Completely my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Well, everyone, let's wrap this podcast up. Thanks. I want to thank you for listening. I'm, I hope you grab some juice and some joy and some gifts from it. If you want to hear more about me and the podcast, you go to sheerclarity.com Obviously I'll be back with another episode soon. And in the meantime, please like it, love it, share it, post it out there on social media and get this episode in particular out to your family and your friends and the people who work for you because there's much to learn. And for that, I'll say goodbye for now.